Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure... At The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices, and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's The Resident we head to, and it's The Resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. And welcome to Whitehall Sources. Lovely to have you there. We're recording on Thursday, the 6th of April. Thank you for finding us. Please make sure you follow and subscribe to the podcast. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll know that Kirsty is not here. She's been in hospital having her operation. Just a quick update on that. Uh, the line from Kirsty, communications professional, this is the line that's been approved. Things are getting better by the day. So that's good. She sent me a lovely voice note the other day um, from hospital. So all good for Kirsty. Frankie's swanning around on holidays, so she gets no sympathy at all. Um, that's what she's up to. So I'm delighted to say that for this week's podcast, we are joined by two very special guests, uh, Spagoos, as we've taken to calling them, as opposed to Spads. Uh, we've got Sarah Southern with us. Hello, Sarah. Hello, good morning. And also on the podcast today, Tom Hamilton. Hello, Tom. Hello. Now, we like to introduce our special guests to our listeners. So, Sarah, um, just give us a bit of a rundown of your CV. Who have you worked for? When did you do it? And how was it? So I spent about a decade working for the Tory party at CCHQ um, in the, the heady days of Michael Howard. And then when <laughs> David Cameron became leader, I uh, worked on election campaigns, worked on international democracy projects. And then I worked directly for Cameron um, in the kind of 
dying days of him being party leader and the glory days of him becoming the prime minister. And then I worked on the least controversial referendum we've had in this country, <laughs> which is, of course, whether we were going to have the alternative vote or not. <laughs> yes, very good. <laughs> That's fair. That is good drama. We like that on the podcast. I remember that referendum, actually. I don't think I was old enough to vote at the time. But um, I do. how do you remember? How do you reflect on that? Because that was that felt like quite a big moment. You know, should we change our, our electoral, our voting system? My main feeling towards it is that it's a really good pub quiz question because nobody ever remembers that referendum. Uh, but it also proved to me that if something is written down, it will probably happen. So the reason that the referendum was on the alternative vote rather than on proportional representation, which is what the Lib Dems really wanted, is because Gordon Brown had written it down in one of the kind of negotiations that went on uh, for the coalition. So because it was already written on paper, it then became wow. something that could be discussed further. So it kind of proved to me that in life, write things down and you're more likely to get what you want. What was the feeling in Downing Street in the immediate aftermath? Was it kind of sigh of relief time or was it, you know, I, I just wonder how much it registered. Was it just one of those things that came and went? I think it pretty much did come and go, but I, I think the the lasting impact of that referendum, though, more, is a lot of people who worked on the no-to-AV side then went and worked on leave for, for the 2016 campaign. So you had a whole host of people who'd had a practice run of a referendum, so knew a lot of the pitfalls, knew about dealing with the Electoral Commission, etc. So I, I think in some ways it was a bit of a, a practice mm. for a number of campaigners in that way. That is really interesting. Right, Tom, let's get your CV as well. Tell us about you. Sure. So um, I worked for the Labour Party for about 10 years from 2008 to 18, with one very tiny break uh, in, in, during that period. Uh, so I worked on three election campaigns and we lost all of them. So you can uh, you, you should bear that in mind when considering how far to trust my expertise. Um, but I did various things for the party, mostly in the in 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 policy. Um, but uh, the most interesting thing that I did, I guess, was that I worked on prime minister's questions for five or six years with with mostly Ed Miliband. Um, but also briefly with, um, with with Jeremy Corbyn uh, towards the beginning of his time as leader before I moved on to a, a different um, different job. I love that. Pre -pre Preparing for Prime Minister's questions. I imagine as in an opposition context, there will, there will be peaks and troughs. I, some weeks you will have an embarrassment of riches, I should think, to, to throw at the other side. And then other weeks you'll be kind of grappling around. Is that is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And um, sometimes there are you, there are several stories, and you, you you don't know which one to pick. Sometimes you are. We would sometimes just try and do the big issues just for the sake of having a clash, where both of us we would know we'd get a decent soundbite on the telly, and then we'd sort of see how how that how that landed, and in the end that landed better for the Tories than it did for us. But it was necessarily the, the worst strategy anyway. And then sometimes you just you look around, you talk about foreign policy in a fairly consensual way. Or you talk about a small story that no one really was was on top of. But if you dodge the big story of the day, the MQs, people notice, mm. and uh, and they will assume that you're dodging it because it's bad for you, even if it isn't. Um, which means that tactically, you almost certainly have to touch on it, um, unless there are really obvious reasons not to. Really interesting. What do you observe about? 
Keir Starmer then, right now, in the, or in this sort of recent spell up until this recess, when it comes to Prime Minister's questions? Because it feels to me as though there was a, a feeling of he was landing some blows, but maybe that's gone away because Rishi Sunak's kind of picked up a bit of a stride and he's, you know, whatever you think of his policies, he's been able to announce things and sort of progress things. And does that sort of dent the opposition's ability to fight back at PMQs? Yeah, I mean, Rishi Sunak has always been, like since since day one really, has always been fairly confident of PMQs. I think he has a tendency to go to his attack material a bit sooner than he should and have a little bit less substantive defence of the government's record on whatever issue he's being, he's being asked about. Um, so I don't think he's an amazing PMQs performer, but he's a... He's a a decent one. It's interesting at the moment, actually, because there is this narrative that uh, you know the Tories are, are fighting back. He really has had some policy successes on on the winter framework and elsewhere, and also some things that he's really getting on the front foot. I think the one thing about that, that narrative that just isn't catching up is the polls, and it's mm. almost quite frustrating for the people who are trying to build the narrative, not not least the Tories, obviously, um, that everything is falling into place, apart from the fact that you can maybe make an argument that on average the Labour poll lead has gone down by. Um, you know, one, two, three points, but there's nothing, nothing more than that. That just makes that harder to push. I mean, in terms of how Keir's doing at, at PMQs, I think broadly, um, pretty well. He does. Um, he, he tends to go for the right questions. He has, he's had some really big successes. I think some of the some of the Partygate stuff actually was down directly to what happened at PMQs in terms of the things just recently that Sir Boris Johnson was asked about at the committee were things he'd said in Parliament in response to questions where it turned out that what he'd said was wrong. And that's one of the big sort of the, the long-term plays at PMQs is that the things that leaders say can turn out to be wrong and that can be really, really dangerous for them. Mm. I think there are things that he doesn't do so well. He doesn't always land jokes brilliantly. I think he'd sometimes be a bit longer-winded than, than, he, than he might be, and that's always tempting. Um, it's tempting for me. Here I am giving you a really long answer. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's always tempting to... When we used to do PMQs, we always used to say, if you can get all your questions onto one sheet of paper, it's going to be a good week. Okay. Um, and I think he, and to be fair, we as well, and most leaders, rarely do that. But actually, you need to just avoid the temptation to say everything and just get in and out as fast as you can. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, I don't know if that was uh, evoking any memories for you. That The legacy of PMQs is quite an interesting one that Tom picks up on, that you kind of give an answer now, and certainly in the Partygate context, that actually comes back down the line months later to be problematic. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's perhaps where Boris Johnson has become a little bit unstuck, really, mm. isn't it? You know, as it, it's firmly on the record there. But certainly, you know, when we were in opposition um, many moons ago, uh, you know, PMQs was so essential because it's the best way for the country to, to really see you as a leader, isn't it? So um, I, I do enjoy still watching PMQs, but I, I still feel though sometimes when uh, Rishi Sunak is at the, the dispatch box, I feel as though he's somewhat detached from everything else that's going on. I sometimes feel as though he's not getting the, the criticism that is perhaps being thrown at other members of, of his cabinet. And I find that quite interesting to witness. Yeah, that is interesting. And I think that actually gets us quite nicely into what we really want to drive at on Whitehall Sources today. And that is just this feeling of things not, not really working, things not 
being right and things just being a bit off kilter. So even in this week, we've seen political figures arrested, talking about Peter Murrell, of course, who was chief executive of the SNP. We've also had this um, Times splash today, uh, exposed how Tory MP offered to lobby for gambling investors. This is Scott Benton, who was prepared to help an investment fund influence policymakers. He's had the whip removed. He is the MP for Blackpool South. And it's just that feeling of, oh, this is not how MPs should operate. This is not how this should work. Uh, the sort of ongoing process around both of those, actually, will uh, remain to see what the outcomes um sort of conclusive outcomes are. Add to that then, strikes that are ongoing, indeed one analysis that we heard on our Times Radio Breakfast programme just the other day, was that the level of strike action that we are experiencing once again, as we sort of head into uh, the summertime, spring to summer, is actually putting us back to square one in terms of the scale. So while some strikes have been resolved, some disputes have been resolved, actually when you look at things like the passport office workers that are on strike, teachers that are still a bit unsettled in England, the scale of what we're facing is really quite huge when it comes to strike action. Then let's throw into the mix recent reports on police and fire service, racism, misogyny, homophobia. New stats out today suggest the police are failing to attend 120 burglaries a day. We've got sewage leaking into rivers and onto beaches. I mean, you don't really need me to highlight how difficult things are and just that feeling of things not clicking. Sarah, first on that feeling, that perception, which is so crucial in politics, a perception of what's happening. Do you, do you sort of agree that there is this feeling of malaise and things just not quite right? Absolutely. And I think that's been going on for some time now. Um, and I think you can feel it certainly within the Conservative Party. Uh, I was at party conference back in October. Um, I don't know whether you remember, but we had a different Prime Minister then. Yeah, um, <laughs> and a chaotic party conference. Uh, very chaotic, but it felt like looking at kind of the rotting corpse of the Conservative Party in truth, really? in yeah. that kind of thing of, this is the, this is perhaps the dying days of, of, of this current, current government. Obviously, we're now into a different Prime Minister and... Perhaps people are feeling a little bit more optimistic, but even kind of party stalwarts are a bit like, this isn't good enough. Why is it that things aren't going in the right direction? Why is it that, you know, so many mistakes and such like are being made? And I'm obviously not such a party activist as I used mm. to be, so I kind of feel as though I can be a little bit critical. But I do sometimes feel like, you know, what? why are we like having sewage pumped out into rivers? That's mm. appalling. Like, mm. why isn't this being sorted? And it, it feels like with the strikes that everybody's life at the minute is just turned upside down. And I think people are, of course, blaming the government, but they're, of course, blaming the people who are striking. I feel as though, you know, nobody really has particularly positive things to say about all of the rail strikes. It's not as though they're saying, yes, absolutely, let's give these people more money. They're saying, I want to get to work because I have less money than I did two or three years ago. I still want to be getting my pay packet. So it does feel as though across the country at the minute there is this frustration, there is this, as you say, malaise. And I'm not quite sure what's going to snap us out of that in yeah. the short term. Does it remind you of anything, Tom, of, of another period perhaps in recent history where we're kind of waiting for something to just be the breakthrough and to and, and perhaps that is a feeling of... Uh, grip on direction from the government, or perhaps it's the opposition setting out a real alternative plan that is tangible and that we can sort of identify as a way through this. Yeah, I mean, it's in some ways it feels to me sort of reminiscent of, of the mid 90s when everything that could go wrong for 
then the Tories um, sort of did go wrong. There's this sort of um, rolling clown show of, uh, of a government that just couldn't couldn't get anything right. What's interesting about it, I think, is you mentioned various various issues. The um, uh, you know the the, the Tory um, the Tory MP corruption scandal, the uh, the strikes issue, um, you know the. the in the police. I think it's important to recognise that in real life, those are three completely separate things. They've got absolutely nothing to do with each other, right? Um, but they build, they help to build a narrative, um, and they can be used by by the media, by a skilled political party, particularly an opposition party, to show that you know everything's going wrong and it's it's time for a change. And you can do that well, or you can do that badly. I think Labour did that pretty well in the 90s, but they were helped by a lot of other things that were going on um, and the, the media narrative played in. I think Labour is trying to do that now. Um, it, in some ways, it's quite easy because you just list a whole lot of bad things and say, this shows that we need to change government. In other ways, like, I remember one, um, one shadow cabinet minister in the... You know, probably 2011, 12, 13-ish, trying, trying to, to do this and doing it just a bit too much. And there was a, a, a press release ended up going out that was something like, with all this rain, people are starting to worry whether, the, wonder whether the Tories really have the country's best interests at heart. So you can blame the Tories for a lot of things, but the weather seems a bit far It's just a bit much. Um, and there are other things that are going on right now that, to be fair, are not really the Tories' fault, but it's on their watch. I mean, if you look back to something like the expenses scandal um, in 2009, um, that affected MPs of all parties because that, that was the nature of it. Um, and there were lots of quite egregious examples of expenses abuse and also expenses not abuse because it was with the rules, but everyone thought that the rules looked terrible. Mm. As I say, all parties were affected, but David Cameron just managed to handle it a lot more adroitly than Gordon Brown did. And that was partly because I think in many ways he was a he was just a better politician at that sort of fast moving stuff. But also to be fair, it was because it's a bit easier for oppositions than governments to to, to, to deal with this kind of thing and move quickly. One of the things that Cameron did quite effectively was to cut off several Tory backbenchers at the knees for for some of the abuses that they'd done while protecting um, some really quite senior people who'd mm-hmm. done things that were objectively um, you know no, ju- just as bad yeah. um, and I think Gordon Brown for various reasons wanted to do things um, wanted to be fair to everyone he was under a bit more pressure from his own from his own party he was less able to be ruthless and so that that narrative of a plague on other houses which came out of the expenses scandal translated quite a lot into it, it's time for change and if there's a change message then that always is going to play better for an opposition than for a government because mm-hmm. they, they represent change. And none of that had anything to do with policy, actually. Lots more to come from this week's Spagoos, our special guest, Tom Hamilton and Sarah Southern as well. Your thoughts on what you're hearing as well. What about this narrative then? Is there momentum for the Conservatives? Can it be punctured? And what and how can that happen? What needs fixed are you feeling like everything is broken right now? Email us anytime. It's hello at whitehallsources.com to get in touch. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this. Oh, hello. Well, you thought you'd got rid of me, didn't you? Well, here I am in the break as well. You are welcome. Here at Whitehall Sources, we are always enthusiastic about rigorous journalism. So... We have been tapping up our very special sources to find out more about The Resident, which says it has excellent rooms in exceptional locations, providing heartfelt hospitality. 
I'm pleased to say their story checks out, actually. Here's one of our sources, Bossman56, who says, Just spent three days at the resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel, clean and tidy. Staff were friendly and very efficient. Will be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, it's just what we have to do as rigorous journalists. How about this from Gufton, which I assume must be a code name. The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. That actually all makes us very proud to be supported by The Resident on Whitehall Sources. And you can join The Resident online. Go to residenthotels.com. And if you all do that, they'll actually just be very pleased with us. So go to residenthotels.com. Thank you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Sarah, what, what do you think about that? I'm seeing you nodding quite a lot. I just wonder, is that, that kind of narrative and puncturing a narrative or or indeed hyping it up if you're in opposition, perhaps? In some ways, when something like the expenses scandal comes around, being in opposition, you know, it's a win, isn't it? Because as you say, you can kind of cut off those backbenchers that are, are causing you problems or perhaps aren't coming with the party in the way that you would like to make that change. But you, you can be so much more critical. And I think... In some ways, the expenses scandal was kind of where you really began to sort of turn from people really seeing Cameron as the, the prime minister in waiting at that point. Uh, and also, I think what what was uh, interesting at that point, there's a, a lot of um, Tory MPs who kind of had the more amusing expenses scandals, you know, like the moat or the duck house, which they actually never got the money for, but obviously remained in people's minds. Uh, so, you know, I think there was also an opportunity for people to kind of um, see politicians in a slightly different way maybe uh, and question how they're living their lives um, and as you say an opportunity to kind of clear some of those backbenchers out and bring in um, you know some of the people that Cameron wanted from his A-list uh, to, to change the makeup of the party but I, as you were talking there Tom I was just thinking you know um, is the, the the equivalent as it were of the expense scandal of the late 20, 20, 20 hundreds, yes. 2000s, yeah. couldn't think what to say that, uh, whether that is second jobs for MPs, mm. because that is an issue across all parties and indeed from, you know, all levels of seniority, really, of MPs. And it does seem to kind of keep cre- creeping up and cropping up as a, an issue for parties. And I just wonder whether that is going to be a, a, another thing that rumbles on in the same way the expenses scandals did. Yeah, I mean, it could be. It, it, 
second jobs is one of those things that largely affects a backbenchers because mm -hmm. just by definition ministers don't have well, they're not allowed to do second jobs but they also don't have time mm -hmm. um, but also it tends to be more of an issue for people at the end of their careers because mm -hmm. if you've had a ministerial career you're quite an attractive proposition for someone who might want to pay you a bit of money for consultancy and what that means is that um, it will almost always hit a long-serving government harder than, than anyone else. I mean, there's potentially an issue with a party that's recently left government, um, former ministers can, can be affected by that as well. But it's one, of, it's one of those natural things that happens. You've got at the moment quite a lot of Tory MPs who've been through senior, senior ministerial positions. They might not be in parliament after the next election and they're trying to cash in now. And that's something that um, it helps to add to that narrative that these people, are, that the party is tired, that it's time for them to go. I think Labour has come out and said that um, they would ban second jobs. There's always some technicalities around that, but what does that mean? And what sort of second jobs can you ban? And I remember working on this, we, we did a PMQs on this in probably 2014-ish when there was some kind of scandal, I can't remember which scandal it was. Um, <laughs> so many. I'd say something, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then having some of those conversations about what do we actually mean by banning second jobs? What about MPs who written books and might get royalties. What about um, quite a lot of MPs do paid surveys for various pollsters, which are actually it's not a massive amount of money, it's probably quite useful research. Um, you know, what about MPs who are keeping up their certification as nurses or solicitors by just doing a little, a little bit of work? Isn't that something we value? Uh, there's a Labour shadow minister actually, Rosanna Ankhan, who does do a second job working in her local A&E every now and then she's qualified to do that I think most people would think that's quite a useful bit of experience but quite how you make an exception for that yeah. just because we think it's a job that has value is really hard so the policy around this is much trickier which is why it never quite never quite goes away. Mm. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because who, yeah, who is the moral arbiter on something like that? Your job is worth it, your job is not, if you're kind of trying to draw a line. I suppose one thing I'm thinking of too is, is in these moments, um, Sarah, what is, how would, how would you sort of reflect on the varying energies of government, if I can put it like that, or within a party? Because if it is scandal after scandal, you can imagine it just feeling, within the behind the scenes, feeling difficult, you know, wading through treacle is the phrase that comes to mind. Something like that. But also the fact that you could be on a real high with a policy announcement, a big win, and you know, that feeling of momentum, and then it comes crashing down if you end up with a, with a scandal like we're seeing on the front page of the Times today. Well, I think if you look at the, the unity of a party, like when the Tories came in in 2010, obviously they're in a, a coalition, but it felt like Cameron really had a control on, you know, the entire parliamentary party and he had the entire membership behind him. Therefore, you felt as though there was real discipline there. And I feel the further we've gone away from 2010, that has decreased rapidly. And it certainly feels as though in the last six, 12 months, the party unity and discipline has kind of got a little bit more chaotic and we are seeing um i would say mps for example like matt hancock who you know we we all know where his career has been in its highs and lows but the fact that he's now done i'm a celebrity he's obviously thinking about what his life's going to be like when he doesn't stand at the next general election his eye is no longer on the ball perhaps of being in the house of commons all the time and I think as, you know, a, a party member and, and a party activist, 
it, it begins to kind of think, well, why am I going to go out on a rainy Easter weekend and deliver leaflets for uh, the local elections and try and, you know, m- retain the county council if the MPs can't even be bothered to do what they need to do in terms of their constituency? So I think that's kind of where the, the, the knock-on impact that it has. And it, it just kind of disrupts everything, doesn't it? You know, it, it from the from the bottom to the top, it just makes people think, why we why we bothering? Why we're working this hard if someone's going to go and ruin it by um, you know not doing the job that they've been elected to do and the do that they get paid to do? Yeah, and it's even more difficult when the rain is the fault of the Tories, of course. Yeah, quite. As, <laughs> as Tom was just highlighting, I wonder then, Sarah, just to keep it with you, then how do you how can you how can you strategize around fixing things around fixing in a system that we've outlined might feel like everything is kind of breaking down how do you set yourself up as the prime minister the politician that is the person to deliver a fix to a, 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 an issue that is broken and perhaps even in your time you can reflect on something that you you can point to and say we fixed that that's something that got better well, I think very much this is surely what Rishi Sunak's team are, you know, sitting around uh, the table trying to, to work out because I feel as though that he is successfully, in my view anyway, maybe not everyone would agree with this, <laughs> but he's somehow managing to distance himself from what has gone on before. Like We never really saw Rishi Sunak at the, um, the podium during all of those COVID press briefings and such like. He kind of remained a bit invisible. And then he obviously gave everyone eat out to help out. He gave everyone a load of money to to see them through. So it feels as though people's view of where Rishi was during that time is a bit removed from where Boris or Matt Hancock were. So I think if they're able to keep that narrative going of actually there's all these bad things that have happened, but that's got nothing to do with us. Our fingerprints aren't quite on this. It's kind of about repositioning the message and repositioning what is happening. Now, unfortunately, I think at the minute, even though they're trying to do that and they kind of keep re-announcing various things, I think the public have got a greater cynicism and perhaps a greater understanding of how things are. And I just don't think they're necessarily buying it as much as they have done in the past. Mm. So although uh, we're kind of with a new prime minister, it feels very much like we're just in the same quagmire that we've been in for 13 years. And I think it's very difficult now for uh, a prime minister who's, let's be realistic, been in office, what, six months, seven months, to kind of come and make these huge changes because all of the things he's done picking have mm. been done by his side. And in some ways, this is where, I mean, I, I sometimes think what joy it must be to be in Labour HQ. You know, there are t- times I kind of think, oh God, at this stage of the election cycle, we would have got really excited by this when we were in opposition. You know, whenever I see a poll that's you know has Labour far ahead, I, I remember back to uh, in the 2005 general election where Liam Fox was party chairman and he would come in and give these presentations on the polling. And even though we were behind in the polls, he would they would show these presentations where they would factor in the um, degree of error and basically show that we would win. And you would leave those memes and be like, yeah, we can definitely win this election. It's going to be great. Not, not a chance. So I sometimes kind of think when things are going quite badly for, for the Tories or you know, there's a, you know another dreadful poll, I think, oh, God, it must be really fun to be in Labour HQ today. They're probably having a meeting or a presentation from their chairman telling them like how absolutely going to romp home. It's going to be a greater swing than 97. Um, but 
you know, let's wait and see. <laughs> I don't trust polls. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, Tom, just a, a thought from you then on that, on the strategy. But what is the strategy in a context of things are breaking? What is the strategy? How would you advise? Well, it depends which side you're on. Yeah. If you're on the government side, then you you do have to try and fix the problem. I mean, that is that's pretty obvious. And I think, to be fair, and as I said earlier, there are a number of successes that, um, that Rishi Sunak's had. By the way, I think being a new person who's only been in office for six months is actually quite helpful for him. One of the things the Tories have managed to do is to try and disguise the fact that they're a long-serving government by being a genuinely new government on, um, oh, I've lost count of the number of occasions since 2010 where we've, uh, <laughs> we've had a brand new government come in and that, does, that just does help in terms of, uh, of reinvention. From an opposition point of view, I think there's two things you've got to do. One is to really push that narrative where you're, you're linking those relatively disparate bits of, the, the different bits of Britain that are falling apart mm. and construct them into an account of why why you need change, but then you need you do need to say what you do differently, and I think you actually need to have slightly less to say about that than you might think. Not nothing, but you just need enough things to point to. So not that you don't need to have like if if your diagnosis is that you need radical change, then fine and push it. And I'm not I'm not making a policy argument. Particularly, I'm just saying that um, I think connecting the problems with something to do with rallying. I think in, in 1997 and in 2010, there was, there was not a lot of big radical offer from Labour or the Tories in that period, but there was a lot of diagnosis of the problem. Mm. And a lot of, especially after 2010, a lot of what the Tories did in office early on in terms of austerity was not really very heavily signalled before the election. You say it was a good thing or a bad thing, but it was they, they cut a lot deeper than they said that, than they said they were going to. Um, but it, it was that narrative of a tired old government that hadn't that had run out of ideas that got them through. And I think I, I think that's a big part of what what Labour needs to be pushing now. And to be fair, they they are, but they're not the only ones pushing it. Mm. Interesting what Tom says there, Sarah, just about I suppose which where you're coming at this from and and how that then works because I suppose. The art of politics is so much about being able to point at something and saying, look, I made that better for you and therefore you should vote for me again. And that fundamentally is what every government that wants to remain <laughs> remain in government, every party that wants to remain in government is trying to do. Absolutely. And I think maybe one of the challenges that the government has at the minute is everyone is feeling the, the pressure, mm. you know, after... well. You know, three years since the pandemic, but we're still feeling that, uh, you know, if you walk around any uh, town in the, the UK at the minute, you see lots of shops boarded up. So, you know, the environment in which you live in isn't as pleasant as it was 10 years ago. Um, obviously, mortgages are on the rise. If you're trying to rent a property anywhere at the minute, it's an absolute nightmare. You know, the rental market in London has just gone berserk. Mm. All of those things impact people's lives every single day. So when the government is saying we've made your lives better, people are going, oh, well, I'm not really sure you have, to be honest, because it's really difficult to get a doctor's appointment. Uh, you're, I have less money in my pay packet. I can't really find anywhere nice to live. So what are you doing for me? And that is a huge challenge that the, the government have got in the minute. And as Tom says, not all of these things are, are necessarily the fault of the government. You know, the pandemic absolutely wasn't the fault of the government. It, you know, it impacted everyone globally. The finances of the, the world at the minute are obviously being impacted by the, the war in Ukraine and other factors. 
factors. But of course, we don't necessarily always look at these things with with a global eye, do we? We look at them on how it's impacting us personally and who is going to fix it for us. That is a good point, isn't it? Yes, I suppose at this point, and I just I wonder if we just ask about local elections too, because um, there are lots of things about this period of time that I think makes politics feel more local. And the mm. classic example, I think, is the cost of living. So I, I feel like sometimes politics can feel like a faraway thing. You know, if it is an international uh, foreign affairs type policy, then it feels very far away. And people might be interested in that, but actually, I don't feel that. Um, or it could be something that affects uh, only retired people. And I'm still working, so I don't really feel that. And I'm not going to for another 30 years. And so there's that. But actually, at this time of cost of living crisis it feels like politics is a lot closer because it is affecting me and I can't get on the train to work because there's a strike and I'm reminded every month when I get paid that actually I'm going to have to spend a little bit more on my heating and I'm, but at the same time I'm grateful because I was seeing the 60 odd pounds coming off my my heating bill every month for the last few months but then that's gone away and so do you see what I mean politics suddenly is invading our lives in a way that sometimes it doesn't absolutely politics is completely local and I remember back in the, the 2000s uh, when we would do surveys out to people about you know what impacted the most, what bothered the most. And if memory serves me, I'm sure that one of the things that was always top of the list was how often people's bins were emptied. Right, yeah. And I think if you were to, you know, do do a, a poll of the, the average man and woman on the street of what's impacting their lives, it is things like, well, actually, our bins used to get collected once a week. It's now once a fortnight and it stinks in the summer. Oh. Or there's so many potholes on my street, I've now had to have the wheels on my car replaced or I can't get on the train. It's the things that impact us day to day to day. You know, bread's more expensive, whatever it might be. And of course, in a local election, you are going to vote according to who is going to fix those potholes or who's going to do up your community centre, whatever it might be. But, you know, we still want that general election to be able to say, we don't like what you're doing, or yes, we very much do like what yeah. you're doing. Keep doing it. And that's an interesting thought because Rishi, a lot of Rishi Sunak's pledges and promises from the start of the year is five promises. Uh, have a timeline on them and a lot of it is you know i'll stop the boats by the, the small boat crossings by the end of the year how far out from a general election do you have to have everything in order so that it is convinced the public i suppose that's partly what the campaign's about but so that the public are kind of roughly on side with oh actually things things do feel better well you need to say your promises or your pledges rather uh, a lot of times for the public to know what they are <laughs> uh, I can guarantee you that from the election campaigns that I've worked on um, you know I'm sure that both political parties uh, kind of stand by that mantra you know you've got to just keep pushing and pushing that message mm. and I think if the public were to know you know without being prompted that there are these flat five uh, pledges from Rishi Sunak then that's kind of half the job done um, to in terms of messages but yeah, we've, it's got to, it's got to be pushing that those five things are going to dictate the um, the news agenda in terms of what number ten is going to push out and what the party's going to push out. But from my point of view, we're absolutely into general election mode already. Right. I know that it's over twelve months away for the likely general election. Um, but I just feel now it's absolutely on election footing. I have no doubt that the Labour Party will be, you know, recruiting extra people to, to be ready for that. I'd imagine the Tories will be rearranging people so that they're set and ready for uh, the general election coming up and they will be fundraising galore, I'm mm. sure. 
Sarah, really interesting to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Uh, that is Sarah Southern. Uh, lovely to have you on the podcast. Also, thanks to Tom Hamilton, who uh, worked with the Labour Party. Uh, Sarah works with the Conservative Party. Your thoughts, welcome then. Uh, email us anytime. The inbox is always open. And the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Uh, your thoughts, your analysis, your reflections on what you've heard today. And indeed, if you have any questions that you want answered over the next few weeks in the podcast, then please feel free to get in touch. The email address is hello at Holyrood. No, it's not. That's the other podcast. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com and we would love to hear from you anytime. Uh, if you would like more on the local elections, we did a little bonus episode with Kirsty and Frankie. Just scroll up in your feed. Frankie describes this as the leisure centre local election. Do you still have one? It's probably the only kind of community thing left was the point she was making. You can hear more on that if you listen to last week's episode. We drop into your feed every single Thursday, so we will speak to you next week. 